Right, I think we should begin. Uh, my name's Hugh Collins. I'm a professor in the uh, LSE Law Department, and it's uh, my pleasure this evening to invite uh, uh, our speaker for this public lecture, which is entitled up there, The Importance of Being Independent, a Regulator and a Female Lawyer's Point of View. Uh, oddly, it seems we've never met I think we've probably been in the same room together because uh, Janet Gamer was a, an employment lawyer uh, and that's something I've taught for many years uh, here as well. Uh, she studied law at Oxford. Her, her tutor, one of her tutors was person we knew as Lenny Hoffman, now uh, Lord Hoffman, or ex-Lord Hoffman, perhaps, uh, retired. Um, she then uh, went, became a solicitor, but part-time or in the evenings, or rushed down to the LSE to do the LLM, uh, studying labour law with uh, Lord Wedderburn and Bob Simpson here. Um, and then she stayed at Simmons & Simmons, which uh, became a large and successful law firm, eventually becoming uh, the senior partner of the city law firm, uh, and in so doing, getting into the Guinness Book of Records by being the first woman senior partner of a major city law firm, uh, which was... Uh, quite an achievement and was duly fated by all these uh, legal awards ceremonies and I'm going to embarrass her by reading out some of the awards that she's got because I enjoyed these. Um, she, uh, she's been described as the doyen of employment lawyers and in legal business magazine a matriarch of the legal profession. Uh, she's twice been voted the experts expert in legal business service, surveys, um, and there was another one I particularly liked. The uh, where she's been named one of the 50 most powerful women in Britain by Management Today, um, and uh, then she. Uh, I'm sorry, I've lost it. The, the Lifetime Achievement Award was another one for, as, as a lawyer, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award for a lawyer in London. Um, and uh, along the way, uh, she's been awarded the um, CBE for Services to Employment Law, and then most recently has become uh, a dame, a member of the House of Lords. Um, Having had this successful career at Simmons & Simmons, she's now uh, become a, a regulator with this title of Commissioner for Public Appointments and, and Civil Service Commissioner. And I had to look up exactly what this involved. Um, I don't think she's going to talk about this very much, but so I'll tell you. It's, um, so this is setting down the rules for uh, appointments in the public sector uh, the sorts of processes that must be followed, the criteria that must be used, the, uh, the rules against cronyism, basically, and political favoritism, and 
in these principles that she enforces, the merit principle is stated to be the fundamental and paramount principle in the public service. So those ministers who want to appoint all their chums to the top jobs have to get past her, which must be a very time-consuming job. Anyway, that's so much by way of background. Um, this talk, she assures me, doesn't really have much to do with any of these things. She wants to think more broadly about the importance of uh, independence in her role and more broadly uh, in regulators of uh, government and business. So I hand over to you. Thank you very much for coming. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you, Hugh, for that introduction. I should just correct one thing. I'm not a member of the House of Lords. Oh. I actually do regulate the House of Lords Appointments Commission. So um, I'm afraid I, I control entry, if you see what I mean. <laughs> um, so I can't really be in it. <laughs> um, this evening, uh, you'll see the title, I want to talk about independence. And I want to start with something that happened in 1776 on the 4th of July. I'm sure you'll all know what it is. The United States declared its independence from Great Britain. George III wrote in his diary that day, nothing important happened today. In fact, he was probably right, because there was no need for a declaration of independence, because the resolution of independence had been passed by the Philadelphia Convention two days previously, and that was all that was needed to break away from Britain. But that declaration is arguably one of the world's most influential documents and other countries and organizations have adopted its sentiments and tone, including the women's rights movement, when it adopted its uh, declaration of sentiments. This evening, I want to muse a little on how independence has been a feature of my own life for many years, not always obviously so, and to ask how important it really has been. As you've heard, during the last five years, I've been the Commissioner for Public Appointments in England and Wales, and also ex officio, a civil service commissioner. In this role, I regulate some 10,000 ministerial appointments to public bodies. You will know them better as quangos. In fact, the Daily Mail often describes me as anti-sleaze watchdog. I don't make appointments myself but I have a code of practice, and through that, I set out the appointments process which is going to be followed. I audit government departments, I hear complaints, I publish an annual report, and I appear on a regular basis before the Public Administration Select Committee. I'm a Crown servant appointed under an ordering council, and most importantly, I am independent of government. And during my term, I've learnt the value of independence as a regulator. Now others have also formed this view. Uh, in its discussion paper on the future of regulation in the public sector, published in March 2006, the Audit Commission, itself an independent body, ironically soon to be abolished in the current bonfire of the Krangos, lists independence as a first order principle to aid the future design of approaches to regulation in the public sector. And the principle is as follows. At the operational level, regulation should be conducted independently of government, which should not override the professional judgments that regulators make about individual public bodies or services. And while noting that the government should be at arm's length, the Commission recognized 
This may present a difficult challenge to government, which is responsible for the funding of public services and may be held accountable by the public for service failure. Or this is indeed the case in relation to public appointments, where the minister will be accountable for the work of an individual who will have been chosen on merit and will head a public body, often delivering the policy of the government of the day. So how does this rather uneasy relationship of independence and ministerial interest play out in practice? Well, there are some practical difficulties. First, the means of funding of a regulator will have a bearing on the nature and scope of the regulator's activities. These may include a grant of funds from the responsible Secretary of State after approval by the Treasury, a levy on the industry or service sector concerned, or collection of fees or making charges for things like inspections, licensing and so on. And each type of funding has its own difficulties in relation to assuring independence, as I shall explain later. But certainty of funding is crucial. The second is the source and terms and conditions of personnel who work for the regulators, because they can affect the perception of independence. For example, where personnel are seconded civil servants, rather than being directly appointed by the regulator, and where the regulator may be reliant on others to supply the personnel required to operate effectively. In my case, my team consists of civil servants seconded from the Cabinet Office and managed by a central human resources function. Now, while this frees up the regulator's time to concentrate on regulation, the trade-off is reduced control of choice of new personnel and therefore continuing quality control of performance. Thirdly, the objectives of a regulator will be set by ministers and parliament, so these must be clearly defined and the lines of accountability made very clear. And fourthly, a regulator may find that there are limited powers of enforcement which hinder the regulator's delivery of the relevant objectives. In my case, while I have power to investigate complaints, I have no power to order delivery up of papers and I have to rely on the good sense of departments to deliver up documentation relevant to a complaint. But despite these difficulties, the importance of maintenance of independence remains. Why? In its 2003 report on independent regulators, the Better Regulation Task Force noted the increasing tendency of successive governments to transfer to independent bodies the delivery of functions that were previously the preserve of central government. This policy has, of course, come to a sudden halt with the arrival of the coalition government, who are seeking to reverse this trend. In the report, ministers were advised, quotes, not to discount the benefits of having an independent regulator, unquotes. They noted that those to whom they spoke had nearly all agreed that being regulated by an independent regulator was preferable to being regulated by a Whitehall department. The benefits they listed were more consistency of decision-making, long-term rather than short-term decisions, more transparency, better accountability, more trust between the regulated and the regulator, and freedom from political interference.
I would agree with all those reasons. Sadly, we have often seen this independence being challenged. Over the years, there have been numerous instances of regulators defending their independence. For example, a press cutting from 2006 tells us that the independent rail regulator, Chris Bolt, who was at first thought to have been, and I quote, too compliant and not tough enough, unquotes, with the government or network rail, had to publicly defend his independence against government criticism. He said that he would not merely, quotes, rubber stamp, unquotes, Department for Transport Decisions. Previously, the department had warned him that a decision by him in favour of Grand Central, a train operator, would harm the department financially, costing it more than £130 million over 10 years. Mr. Bolt ignored, quotes, an angry letter, unquotes, from the department, and, quotes, furious, unquotes, ministers, and ruled in favour of the train operator. Many regulators have found themselves in the shoes of Mr. Bolt and will continue to do so. In these straitened times, the argument of cost and the public purse will no doubt be deployed even more, and it will be up to the independent regulators still standing to continue to act in accordance with their duties. The coalition government has made the clear political decision that fewer government functions should be performed by bodies established at arm's length from government, and questions have been asked by the government about whether the particular function needs to exist at all, whether it could be performed better or in a more cost-effective way uh, elsewhere, and whether abolition of the body would deliver acceptable results at a sustainable lower level of cost. The National Audit Office has established that the bulk of money is spent by very few arm's length organisations. Some 80% of the spending of executive non-departmental public bodies is concentrated in just 15 bodies. And of this spending, 75% is passed on to third parties in the form of grants or is used to fund public services. Some commentators, such as the Institute for Government, have argued that the criteria used by the government to assess public bodies depends too much on technical expertise and not enough on the need to give independence to bodies which need to command public confidence in their ability to scrutinise government and to develop regulatory or standards regimes. An unease has been loudly expressed by the Constitution Committee of the House of Lords about the legislative mechanics to enable the reorganisation of public bodies through the Public Bodies Bill. The bill was introduced to the House of Lords on the 28th of October this year and grants to ministers extensive powers to abolish, merge or modify the constitutional arrangements, funding and functions of a very significant number and range of public bodies. The committee has said that these so-called Henry VIII powers should be clearly limited, exercisable only for specific purposes and subject to adequate parliamentary oversight. In its view, the government has failed to explain why ministers should have the power to change the statute book for the purposes provided for in the bill and to provide adequate procedural safeguards. In its words, the use of these powers, quotes, are pushing at the boundaries of the constitutional principle that only Parliament can amend or repeal primary legislation. Now, given that many independent regulators, when asked by the Better Regulation Task Force what made them independent, answered statute, these developments are worrying. And as Joshua Rosenberg has recently said when writing about this in the Law Society Gazette, 
If this bill becomes law, ministers will be able to scrap or refashion public bodies with little more than a stroke of a pen. Their independence will be lost. However, there are signs that governments are learning the important lessons of independence. For example, efforts have been made to emphasise the independence of the newly formed Office of Budget Responsibility. The outgoing chairman, Alan Budd, advised the Treasury Select Committee that the office should hire some of its staff from outside the Treasury, move to another central London location, and Parliament should have a role in the appointment of its senior staff. More generally, certain public appointments now require an appearance before a select committee by way of pre-appointment scrutiny. And during this scrutiny, the independent mind of the potential appointee is tested. Also, public appointees to key roles, such as mine, are increasingly being appointed for single fixed non-renewable terms in order to avoid the temptation for appointees to curry favour in order to secure renewal of appointment. And these are increasingly the norm for ethical regulators. And finally, the new Speakers Committee for the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority is to include independent members drawn from outside Parliament who have not previously been MPs or peers. This committee will, after consulting the Treasury, lay the estimate or budget for the authority before the House of Commons. As the Committee on Standards in Public Life noted in its report on MPs' expenses and allowances, the independence of an organisation can be undermined by limiting its funding, and perception matters as much as reality. So such an independent element will bring with it an external view to the deliberations of the body, widen its horizon, increase its experience base, and strengthen its legitimacy with the public. Most importantly, it will promote greater transparency and independence in the committee's operations. So that's enough about regulation. What is the link between independence as a regulator and my experience as a female lawyer? Well, before becoming Commissioner for Public Appointments, you've heard I spent 35 years practicing employment law in the city, finally becoming senior partner of my firm. I've seen the solicitor's profession change from a profession in which women were a very small minority on recruitment to their being in the majority today. Sadly, they are not, however, uh, approaching being in the majority in the management of law firms. Well, why is this? There are many reasons why women do not stay the course through to partnership. Some are more obvious than others, such as the demands of child-rearing and a 24-7 job, or the small acts of exclusion, which unwittingly may turn women away from a long-term legal career. As Carol Sanger, the American legal academic, put it, Modern women lawyers know that the biographies of women who chose to locate their professional lives in the law are likely to be stories of piecemeal progress and circumscribed success. And yet these biographies do tell us something about the role which independence has played and continues to play in women lawyers' advancement. In 1831, the Society of Gentlemen Practitioners and other associations formed the Law Society. In the mid-1870s, one Eliza Orme established an independent law office in London. She successfully engaged in conveyancing, patents, and estates work for decades. She did not seek admission as a solicitor or a barrister, but engaged in legal work at the boundaries of the professions, which were then still fluid in the last decades of the 19th century. She was an educated woman with a commitment to objectivity, justice, and equality. She retired 
two decades before women became eligible to become lawyers. More were to follow her. What is evident about these women is that they were assisted in their advancement by access to higher education, including legal education, at the end of the 19th century. And particularly interesting is that they were supported by male colleagues. In this country, John Stuart, John Stuart Mill, Leonard Courtney, and Benjamin Jowett. Carrie Morrison, the first woman to be admitted as a solicitor in 1922, set up in practice with her husband, and Maud Crofts, who was the first woman to take out a practicing certificate, set up in practice with her husband and brother. However, many of the first women lawyers struggled to maintain their legal practices during their lifetimes. They were all trying to forge careers in the then gentleman's profession of law, but on their own terms. They were trying to assert their independence. Now this continues today, but possibly at a price and with different challenges. One issue which does not often figure in research about the obstacles for women in the law is the role of the woman's partner and the effect of earning status and proper reward. In a recent article in the Financial Times entitled Breaking the Glass Ceiling Begins at Home, Lucy Kellaway compared the recent picture of Kate Middleton smiling adoringly at the future King of England with the message received from the Financial Times ranking of the 50 most powerful women in world business. She concluded that nearly all had children, but could not find one with an alpha male husband. The only example of a female CEO who married a male CEO was not much help since the marriage did not last. The lesson was to give more thought to the choice of spouse who should be happy to play a supporting role. In other words, she was describing the need for a dependent infrastructure if independence to earn was to be achieved. It would be instructive to establish the extent to which the fee earning status of women lawyers and their spouses helps or hinders the ability of such lawyers to reach leadership positions in law firms. For example, by providing the infrastructure or funds necessary for adequate childcare so that the hours necessary to achieve partnership can be worked. Now, we already know from existing research that from the first job, women do not negotiate their salary and that men do. They believe that if they do a good job, they will be promoted and rewarded. They may also dislike self-promotion and power grabbing. The result is a loss of the independence which proper reward and recognition can bring. However, once gained, that capacity to earn, and in the case of some law firms, uh, to earn well, locks the structure into place, sometimes leading to tragic consequences when the female earner becomes trapped in a cycle of stress and unsustainable demands. The reality is that even the most independent woman lawyer is dependent in some way in order to maintain her position. She may be indicating that she is self-sufficient, but she will often be turning to others for help and support. However, so are many men. And as we all know, the Declaration of Independence said that certain truths were self-evident and that, quotes, all men are created equal, unquotes. For this purpose, I will include women. What you may not know 
is that Thomas Jefferson's original draft said, quotes, all men are created equal and independent. What a pity that word independent was not retained. Thank you. So, some reflections on the independence there. Um, and we got the opportunity for questions or comments about either of these aspects of the talk, really, the sort of the importance of independence for regulators and uh, the independence of women in the legal profession, but presumably in business and elsewhere oh, as well. Nice. Yes. We'd like to have a go. We've, we've got microphones. If you want to say who you are before you speak, that would be nice. Yeah, I'm Jennifer Holroyd. I'm an independent consultant solicitor working for Keystone Law. Well, it's, it's so not quite independent, but <laughs> part of a, a sort of virtual organization. Um, thank you very much for that talk, Janice. I just wanted you didn't mention about your own experience of, of um, career progression and whether you required independence and how you were sort of hampered by a lack of lack thereof. So I just wondered if you'd say a few words about that. Right. Well, I should, the first thing I should say straight away is I, I, I have a wonderful spouse who was very open-minded and didn't jump to conclusions and let me run with it. That was, that was very, very important. And it does go back to this point about your infrastructure. Um, I think in spirit I was very independent. I only see it now, looking back, but I was very independent. I wanted to do things my way. And I was very lucky because I was one, one of the very first women. Um, and uh, employment law was in its infancy when I started the Industrial Relations Act. 1971 had only just been passed when I, I managed to get going with my practice. So I was on my own. It was very fortunate that I was female because people would call the firm and say, you have that woman who does employment law, which immediately marked me out, extremely helpful. Um, so from the word go, I was able, independence was almost given to me from word go. I think it's much more difficult these days um, because and there are so many women entering the profession it's so much harder to sort of carve your own niche and stand out, which is why I mentioned that point about women um, being afraid to promote themselves and somehow think it's not quite right to sort of say you've done a good job and all this sort of thing. Uh, it's even more important these days to do it. And I see it even as Commissioner for Public Appointments. Um, we've done some research recently on the barriers that women experience when they apply for public appointments. And the barriers, the main ones that came up were um, the attractiveness of public appointments, which is not surprising at the moment with the press that's happening, their awareness of public appointments, uh, the issue of remuneration, um, question of time and caring responsibilities, but the very relevant one is lack of confidence to apply. Uh, and there is some research which the Department for Transport did which showed that if a woman looks at an advertisement and there are about 10 criteria in the advertisement, the woman will only apply if she's sure she can fulfill all of them, whereas the man will apply if he can do about 60%. Um, and I've seen that happening over and over again. I've been pleading with women to apply for public appointments. Somebody else. We've got 
there that you, yes. Yes, hello. Thank you very much for, for that um, talk. My name is Fierle uh, Hevat and I'm in the law department here. Um, it struck me that you, you mentioned this, this phrase stuck in my head, to work the hours necessary to become a partner in a law firm. And yes, absolutely, because I was thinking about power couples and academics, and they're not that frequent, but they're not that rare either. And I could sort of, on the top of my head, list quite a few. And that probably has something to do with the academic lifestyle in itself being somewhat more conducive to, to a balanced life. It's still difficult, it's still juggling, but it's not as insurmountable as I think it would be for two partners in a law firm to try and still you know, uh, raise a couple of kids on the side. And so this brings me to, to the question of if, if a change, if, if the environment should kind of change in order to allow greater independence for people to individually um, kind of realize themselves professionally. Isn't what should change this, this ethics of working monstrously long hours? Isn't that sort of the, the excluding factor, basically? Because that's, that's the key cause that men or women need this support network back home in order to still have more than just a professional life. As you know, hours in law firms um, are a, a real issue. Um, I always used to say that, um, and you can't ignore this, I'm afraid, if you're an international law firm and you've got to work across time zones, the organization has to be 24-7. It has to be able to function 24-7. But that doesn't mean that the individuals in it necessarily have to function 24-7. The problem is a lot of people don't accept that. Um, they take the view that actually, sorry, this is a 24-7 operation and there is some sort of um, prize to be won um, if, you, if you match that. Um, I find it a very masculine um, way of proceeding and I tried very hard when I was senior partner to try and get people to look at it um, in, a, in a much more um, well efficient way actually because what one is talking about is actually efficient use of human resources I don't care whether they're partners or trainees or assistant solicitors you want lawyers who are at the top of their game absolutely performing well um, and if they're spending all hours of the day and night you know, working there will come a point when they are not working well um, I think clients have a role to play in this because um, I saw many occasions where clients would say, "Yeah, yeah, you know, that's got to be right, Janet. You know, um, you know, uh, it's fine. You know, uh, we're, we're happy with part-time working or whatever, or working at home." But as soon as the big transaction came along, no way. <laughs> it was a complete change. So, you know, sorry, we need you there. We, we've got to have you. Um, so uh, there is a lot of education that still needs to be done about uh, hours of work. Um, I do think that law firms have quite a lot to learn from the accounting firms about allocation of work and the scheduling of work. Um, because I, I, it's something lawyers don't get taught. They don't get taught how to manage workloads and schedules. Um, and you, you will often see partners, you know, say on a Friday afternoon when the injunction comes in, grabbing the first passing lawyer and saying we've got to do this injunction quick you know you were going to go home bad luck um, and that's not sensible because you are not using your human resources efficiently 
Um, if you look at some of the accountants, they've got the most fantastic, sophisticated software which allocates people to jobs, uh, it makes sure that you know, the skills are matched and so on and so forth. So I think the legal profession has got a lot to learn in terms of ours. It's one at the front here. My name is Linda Murray. I'm, I'm actually on leave in London, but I work at uh, Wits University in Johannesburg. And um, my job is in the support services, and I interact a lot with um, regulators um, of higher education. And I want to go back to the point you made um, about um, minimal um, uh, enforcement uh, abilities that you have as a regulator, and you mm. gave an example. And I wanted to ask if um, you have uh, any advice about uh, what could improve that uh, inability to enforce um, what regulators do? Um, first of all, you have to know where your powers of enforcement might come from. Um, and then you have to lobby hard to get them, is basically what it comes down to. Um, so I will, if, if I have a, a complaint where, um, in fact I did have a complaint, where I wanted some papers which the department declined to give me, in fact they quoted the Data Protection Act, I said just try quoting the Data Protection Act, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why you've got to lift them up and the Data Protection Act is no defence and we had a big tussle, in fact I think it took two years to get the papers out of them but uh, that was an unusual situation. Um, one of the advantages of going in front on a regular basis in front of a parliamentary select committee is that it gives you an opportunity to voice some of these concerns. Um, and if you voice them often enough and long enough, you can get the right person to start listening. Um, and that's usually a mix of um, departmental officials and the people in charge in the government of the day. Uh, I actually didn't mention the fact that I have a very valuable way of enforcement, which you, you often won't see. Um, I have the power to make a public statement about uh, a minister who has not been behaving correctly. And I have to say, I have used that on a number of occasions where the minister has not been seeing things my way. And I've said, well, I'm sorry, if you carry on like this, I will have to make a public statement. I, I, I treat it as a badge of honor, but not once during the last five years have I ever been driven to make a public statement. That is actually a very, very useful weapon. It's also a weapon that I think if I used it a lot would cease to have any effect. Um, so there are subtle powers of enforcement which often sometimes work better than the most direct uh, ways. Uh, hi, Chief. Thank you. Uh, I'm Joe Braithwaite from the Law Department here too. Um, the FT had a had a conference recently on on women at the top, and it had had videos and, and, and other materials available on online. And Christine Lagarde from uh, France was was one of the was one of the speakers, and she uh, she explained that she recently had a right turn or, or a U-turn rather on, on on the issue of quotas, setting quotas. Uh, in public companies for the composition of boards to increase uh, gender diversity, so bringing, bringing more into line with Norway, which is famous for having passed legislation on those lines, of course. 
Um, I wondered if you, if you, in principle, agreed with that approach in particular. Uh, if you, if you agree that the quality of an institution, whether it's a law firm or a public body, has something to do with the makeup of the people that work therein? Let me deal with the second question first, because that's the easiest. I'm a big devotee of having the most diverse group of people in a collective decision-making environment you can get, because um, I think it's broadly accepted that the, the more you have different points of view, even if it's constructive dissent, you will get a better decision. So I'm, I'm, at, I'm absolutely you know, I'm with that argument. Um, my job as commissioner is to uphold the principle of appointment on merit after a fair, open, and transparent process. Um, I have to say, um, I have not reached the same decision as Christine. Um, I am not yet convinced that quotas are the way forward. Um, I think we still have some other routes we can go first. And I know these are being actively looked at by Lord Davies and others, um, which uh, may get there. Um, I, do, I do have worries about the argument that if someone is put on a board uh, because of a quota, that person will feel that they're not there on merit. Um, and that is very powerful, to be appointed to a position on merit against competition, strong competition gives a legitimacy to the person in that role, which I don't think um, a quota system supplies. And I have to say, that happened to me when I was elected a senior partner at Simmons & Simmons. It's a lesson I, I learned then. I had no idea that I was going to be elected a senior partner of Simmons & Simmons. I fought at the election. Uh, I had two competitors, um, both male. and. Um, I saw afterwards how important it was to have actually fought that election and to have been elected, you know, after a competition. Um, the other point about quotas, well, I suppose there are two points, um, and this is putting on my employment lawyer hat. When we had disability quotas, they didn't work terribly well, and I think there have been experiences in other countries where quotas have not worked, admittedly not in relation to gender. Uh, and secondly, uh, looking at the uh, Norwegian experience, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but one of the FTSE reports, the new report is coming out this week, but one of the previous FTSE reports quoted um, some research which had been done in Norway, which showed that while there had been a fantastic move forward in Norway with the quotas, the effect had been to mop up everyone in the pipeline. So that there was a bit of a gap forming in the future because all the relevant women had already gone onto the board. So there was an issue about where the future members of the board were going to come from. So there may be some unintended consequences um, of applying quotas. Um, I'm open to persuasion, but I have not yet been persuaded it's the way forward. I'll have to speak to Christine, see, see what made her change her mind. <laughs> uh, Martin Lachlan, also from the Law Department. I just wanted to push you a little on, on this quality of independence. You mentioned the American Declaration of Independence. Well, that was simple because we know what they were seeking to be independent of, and that was British rule. Uh, but I'm, I'm intrigued by the first draft, or one of the first drafts of Benjamin Franklin, uh, where he as we hold these truths to be self-evident, namely that all men are created equal and independent. Yeah. If he were saying that, 
what he was saying, surely, was that there are a small group of us who have property, and that property gives us independence, including the property of slave holding. And we have independence just because we are wealthy males. And that's what gives us the vote, and that was, has been the history of the suffrage over many decades, uh, when only independent people had the right to elect their rulers because they, owned, they didn't have, only the independent people had a sufficient stake in society to be able to uh, exercise this, this uh, difficult responsibility wisely. So what is it? What is this quality of independence? And surely, it surely means one must be wealthy and have free time and have experience. And therefore, it's a very elitist notion that these chosen regulators must have this essential quality of independence. What are they independent of? Well, obviously they're independent of the government of the day. That's one intention. If they're regulating a particular sector of industry, then they ought to be independent of that sector of industry. But, but they are there performing a public function. So while they're independent of industry or independent of partisan politics, they somehow have to have the quality of being able to discern what the public interest dictates and what their public interest requires. How do they, how do they acquire this? Is not independence a license for their own arbitrariness, their own, their own peculiar quirks about what, how this sector of, of society should operate? Uh, to whom are these independent beings accountable? I was hoping you were going to ask that question, because that's the question that a lot of people ask regulators. To whom are you accountable? And I always answer the public, and uh, I'm, I, my accountability to the public is demonstrated when I appear in front of that parliamentary select committee. Um, and that's about as far as I can go in terms of accountability. Um, we often try to sort of, this is, I'm talking about being a commissioner at the moment, we often try and bottle what it is we're doing. No, so we, in fact, very recently we've put a strap line on our emails because we, uh, we thought, well, we've got to try and explain what we're here for. And we, we all came to the conclusion that uh, we were providing assurance to the public about public appointment processes. We are assurers. Uh, and to that extent, we are accountable to the public. Um, I think the point about being independent and wealthy is a very interesting one and to some extent that's what I was saying about female lawyers because you get to a point in a career as a female lawyer when you earn enough money to afford the childcare, you've sorted out all the issues about you know, who's going to stay at home, who's going to pick up the children and so on and so forth if your children are still of that age and the money ironically while making you independent then becomes almost a chain for you because you become reliant on it to do all the things that you need to do in order to do the job, the childcare and, and the sporting husband and so on and so forth. And so you get some really difficult choices that have to be made, often in a marriage, between a husband who perhaps has a, a wife who is earning far more than the husband 
And the wife turns around and says, and say she's a female lawyer, you know, she turns around and says, well, look, you know, I'm any more than you are. You might as well stay at home and look after the children while I go to work. And actually, anecdotally, if you look at women who have done very well in law firms, um, uh, this is not true in my case, I should say, uh, very carefully, before my husband uh, hears about this, um, you will see that in many, many cases, the woman has gone up into the uh, partnership and the husband has somehow parked uh, his career or slightly fine-tuned it just to try and accommodate the woman going up the tree. So I think the issue of earnings and money is, is very, very important. The interesting thing is that, of course, public appointments, um, and this is a problem for women, most public appointments, while they are part-time, are unpaid. So by definition, the kind of people who can afford to do public appointments at the last stages in their career tend to be men who have built up pension pots who have done their job, you know, they've got the pension pot and they say, now I want to give something back and they think about becoming a public servant and going into a public appointment. When you speak to the women, they're still trying to get the pension pot at the same sort of age. They've probably still got caring responsibilities. If they've said goodbye to the children, they're probably now caring for the, grand, you know, the grandparents. Um, so they have a completely different dynamic. So I do agree with you, the issue of money um, in whatever direction it comes is, is incredibly important to the issue of independence. And obviously in, in the environment that you know, the Declaration was, was drafted, there was a completely different set of um, uh, property values of, of one kind or another. Sorry, that was a long answer, wasn't it? You sparked so, so many points. <laughs> yes, yes. Others. I, I wanted to ask you a question about a little bit of detail in, in your talk um, about pre-appointment scrutiny by Parliament. I, uh, I spent, uh, earlier this year I spent some time in the United States where uh, employment law, labor law was in chaos because the National Labor Relations Board, which is the key court, only had two members because every nomination uh, by Obama had been vetoed and uh, it was unclear whether a court that was supposed to have five members could continue to operate with only two. And that very issue went to the Supreme Court of the United States which um, declared perhaps predictably, because it doesn't like the National Labor Relations Board very much, declared that it didn't have a quorum. So it couldn't decide anything. So nobody could decide any labor questions uh, for two or three years. So that would, so it's like in this country, I suppose, sort of combination of the EAT, the Employment Appeal Tribunal, and the, uh, the CAC uh, not to be allowed to decide anything. Um, and that was all because of this sort of uh, political scrutiny. So uh, the lesson I drew from that was this was a bad idea, but maybe you've, you have a different experience in this country. Right, well, I'm on record about this. Okay. <laughs> scrutiny. The first, the first comment, um, which is an important comment, is that the pre-appointment scrutiny which is being tried out in this country is totally different from the confirmation hearings that happen in the States. Um, there is a fundamental difference between the political appointments in the States and the kind of public appointments that pre-appointment scrutiny is dealing with. 
So it's a very important distinction to understand. Uh, and also what a lot of people don't understand is that the, the United States does actually have the equivalent of a civil service operating underneath, um, despite, despite most of the focus being on these political appointments. So um, that's the first point. I have expressed publicly to the Select Committee concerns about pre-appointment scrutiny, <coughs> number of concerns. Um, I couldn't work out, and I, we, we went on a long journey to try and work out what the answer to this question was, what the purpose of the hearing was. Because the uh, hearing takes place, if it's a regulated public appointment, not all of them are, um, the hearing takes place at the end of the selection process. So the applicant will have gone through a long appointments process, will have been through an interview panel, and will have emerged as the most meritorious candidate chosen by the minister. The minister, um, under my system, uh, because it's a ministerial appointment, um, has choice. So the selection process produces to the minister two or more appointable candidates. And we all say two or more, so that there is ministerial choice. The minister then chooses the candidate that the minister wants, and then the candidate goes in front of the select committee. So the question is, what is the person doing there? What is the purpose of the appearance? And after two sessions with the select committee, um, the nearest answer we came to it was that that hearing was the beginning of the process of accountability of that person as a public appointee. It was not part of the selection process as such. Um, and indeed, I make it very clear in my code that I will not hear complaints about the conduct of pre-appointment scrutiny. It's outside my jurisdiction. I've expressed concerns about it on a number of levels. Um, the first is the danger of uh, politicization of the process. And there has been at least one case involving Maggie Atkinson, who was appointed the Chards Commissioner, where I'm afraid she became a bit of a political football between um, Ed Balls, the relevant uh, Secretary of State, and the chair of the relevant select committee. The select committee advised against her appointment, and the minister said, well, that's all very interesting, but I'm going to appoint her anyway. And she was caught a sort of bit like piggy in the middle. Um, that is not desirable, in my view, in relation to a public appointment. The second issue is that I have concerns about it putting people off, particularly in the private sector, applying for public appointments. Having a public hearing in front of a select committee is not for the faint-hearted, and you can come out of a hearing in front of a select committee with your reputation in tatters if um, the questions go in a particular way. Um, and I think it puts people off from applying. I have anecdotal um, sort of, uh, evidence from recruitment consultants who've told me as much. I was actually asked by the select committee if there'd been a pre-appointment scrutiny hearing when I applied, and I did, I applied through an advertisement to be the commissioner for public appointments, would I still have applied? Now, bearing in mind at the time I was senior partner of Simmons & Simmons, I was the custodian of professional standards in the firm amongst anything amongst other things. I was the ambassador for the firm. Um, I hadn't told my partners I had applied uh, because it would have caused all sorts of speculation in the press, in the lawyer and legal week and so on and so forth. So the whole process had been kept entirely confidential um, until I was sure that I had approval from all the parties and could tell my partners. Um, the prospect of going in front of a select committee and saying, hello, I'm senior partner of Simmons and & Simmons, and I'd like to be commissioner for public appointments, and here I am, please tear me to pieces, was just not on. 
Um, and the select committee had real problems understanding this. I gave them another example of a chair of a FTSE company where just the departure of the chair might have an effect on share price. Um, in that situation, um, those discussions are kept totally confidential in terms of where that person moves. Uh, and you wouldn't find someone like that going in front of a select committee uh, and running the risk of um, uh, the effects on share price and everything else that might occur. So I think there are real problems with it as a process. Um, I am in favor of democratic scrutiny I th and some sort of democratic check. Uh, my position is that I think it ought to take place after appointment because then you can have a meaningful conversation with the um, candidate. Uh, they will have had an opportunity to get their feet under the desk and had a look round. Um, you can do it soon after they've started and you might actually get some useful information. At the moment, if you look at these pre-appointment scrutiny hearings, the committee will say, well, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, uh, what do you think about this body and what do you think you're going to do? And they'll say, well, I haven't had time yet. I haven't even been there. I have no idea. So they have this kind of conversation which is purely speculative and that to me is not very helpful either. So as you can gather, I'm not yes. in favour of them. But there is, a, there's a, if I can draw you out a bit more, there is a link between your answer here and what we were, Martin Lachlan was raising about uh, so this independent regulator sort of decides what the public interest is within some kind of policy framework. But it so once they've been there for a year, mm. they do have a view, and that might be an appropriate moment yes. for that view to be subjected yes. to political. And I think that's a legitimate discussion, yes. and I think it's a helpful discussion to have, yes. too. Definitely. Any other points or questions here? Uh, do Come back, yes. Yes, so, uh, it was just a quick follow-up. Why did you make the switch from, from being a... <laughs> Gosh, that's a deep question. I will tell you exactly how it happened. Um, I'd spent 35 years in the same law firm. I'd spent five years, the last five years, as senior partner. I loved it. I discovered I really enjoyed managing and leading and everything else that goes with it. Um, I could have stood for re-election for another five-year term. And... Uh, actually, I don't really know the answer to this question, but I, I sat down one day and I thought, isn't it about time you did something different? <laughs> so I decided I wasn't going to stand for re-election. And I remember vividly in the summer before the year when my term was up, I told my partners I wasn't going to stand for re-election. And I remember looking at my diary and it was packed full of meetings and trips and goodness knows what until the summer of 2006. And after that, it was completely and utterly blank. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is awful, what am I going to do? Um, and I, I, I went into a sort of personal meltdown, actually, um, and started to say to myself, well, come on, you've got to get your act together. You've got to try and work out what you're going to do next. And it was another female lawyer who suggested I go and see a headhunter. I went to see this headhunter, and the first thing he said was uh, bring your CV along. And I said, I haven't got one. Um, so he said, well, you need one. Let's start with the CV. So I did the CV, and of course he told me I drafted it incredibly badly and started to play around with it. Um, and, and he basically gave me the building blocks of uh, getting myself together, you know, basically packaging myself. Um, and then one day, 
I was sitting next to my husband and I saw the Sunday Times appointments page. And he told me to look in the Sunday Times because that was a good place to look for you know, different jobs. And my husband drew my attention to the advertisement <coughs> for the Commissioner for Public Appointments. And here I was absolutely in accordance with the Department for Transport Research. I looked at the criteria. The last criterion on the list said, a knowledge of employment law might be useful. And I thought, I could do that. And then I went back up the list. And as I went back up the list, I thought, well, yes, okay. Mm -hmm. Then my husband turned to me and said, and it talked about, you know, important to have this infrastructure. He said, why don't you apply? He said, you won't get it, mind you, but it'd be good experience. So I went into this process. I was so bad that I got the application in at 3 o'clock on the last day. I was so late I had to have it hand-delivered hand to make sure it was there. I went through the entire process thinking, this is a jolly exercise, you know, I'm not going to get this, and so on and so forth until I went through the interview, which was like something out of James Bond, that's another story. Um, and then I finally had a phone call from the headhunter who said, you're the preferred candidate. And I, I just fell about laughing. He said, people don't normally react like that. And I said, well, I hadn't really intended to get this job. I was just trying it out. So it was purely happenstance from that point of view. But I exhibited all the stereotypical attributes of a woman applying for a job. Um, I was goaded by someone else to do it, and then even when I started to do it, I was kidding myself that, you know, the criteria weren't for me. So it was pure happenstance, actually. I shouldn't be giving you that advice, should I? I should be saying it's all carefully planned and so on, but I'm afraid it, it wasn't. I think you'd be giving our women students some <laughs> sort of advice about uh, how to select a husband as well. As <laughs> 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 yeah, they're giggling over there, I can see. Um, well, I think, I think there's no more questions. I think we've had a good time. And thank you for your full and frank disclosure and candid advice about uh, what's going on. It just remains for me to thank the audience for their uh, good questions and to thank you for uh, an entertaining talk and evening. Thank you thank very you. much. <laughs>